Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 65, Revelation, the one seated on the throne. And in this episode, we're going to continue our look at Revelation chapter 4 with the description, the one seated on the throne, and pay particular attention to just how little John actually describes the one seated on the throne, but rather describes many of the things and the creatures that are there around the throne and what comes from the presence of the one seated on the throne, but in keeping very closely with the Old Testament idea that the Lord telling Moses in Exodus 33 that no one can look at my face and live, John keeps an element of the mystery present with the one seated on the throne, but as we'll find out in Revelation 5, is not afraid to bring the face of the one who reveals this God to us um, in the person of Jesus, and he will in fact join the one seated on the throne on the throne himself. But we won't get to that episode until later, but in this episode I'd like us to look at the colors and the creatures and the events and the things taking place um, in John's vision and what they tell us about the presence of the one seated on the throne. So let's just jump right in. To begin this week's episode, I'm going to read again Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, as we get into this week's episode, I don't know that we will get through everything in the 30 minutes that I have devoted to this, but if not, we will pick up the rest in the following episode. But what I had shared in last week's episode were some of the themes present when you hear the sound of a trumpet and that we were um, the Lord coming to meet with his people, gathering the congregation to worship, the Lord entering his temple and the Lord calling um, troops to battle, and that all of those themes are going to find their place very well 
in the book of Revelation, particularly as we move beyond chapter 4 and 5 um, with the calling of the troops to battle. But since we're in chapter 4 right now, what I want to do is draw your attention back to one of the aspects of what the trumpet sound is actually um, reminding us of, and that is the sound that was made when the Lord entered his temple. And we're talking in this um, episode, particularly from verse 1, that what John is seeing is a door standing open in heaven. He is given access to the heavenly reality to see things as they are in heaven so that he can relate that geographical reality, if you will, to his situation and to the church's situation on earth. But it's important for you to understand that all through the Old Testament, the temple was the place where we believed heaven and earth met. And in fact, the way the temple was constructed, the way the tabernacle was constructed, we're told in various places, Exodus 25, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9, that these places, the tabernacle, the temple, were images or shadows of God's throne room in heaven. And in fact, the Lord flat out tells us in Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So the Lord identifies the fact that heaven is his throne. Heaven is where he is seated and the earth is his footstool. It's almost as if the image that we have of heaven and the earth is connected by the presence of God. And that's an image that simply shows up all of the time. And so what John sees here in Revelation 4 is the heavenly original rather than the earthly copy or shadow of the temple. And when you look at the descriptions of both the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, you see all sorts of ways that each one of them, each the tabernacle and the temple, depicts the heavens and the earth. Uh, for example, um, a thick blue curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place, and there were images of cherubim woven into it. Why was the curtain blue, and why were there angelic creatures woven into that fabric? Well, blue was a symbol for the sky, and from our vantage point here on earth, the sky separates us from God. Now, we know in modern day that the sky looks blue because the light is reflecting off the ocean, but regardless, the sky is always blue. And from our viewpoint down here, if you had a place in the temple where only the high priest was allowed to go beyond the blue curtain, it was simply this reminder that only a specially appointed individual could ever pass through this barrier that actually kept God and his human creatures separate. It might also help you to know that in Hebrew, the same word is translated both heaven and sky, depending on the context. So our idea of heaven and sky, it's, it's the same place. It's the place where the birds fly. It's the place where the, the sun and the moon rule over the, the skies um, and so on. So what we have in the temple is a miniature heaven and earth coming together, which is what temples were always understood to be in the first place. And we've already looked at in earlier episodes that the temple's walls and doors had cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers carved into them, reminding everyone who worshipped there of a garden 
where man and God once dwelt perfectly together. And so for John to get a vision of heaven and to, for us to recognize that visions of heaven were described in temple language, temples were also described in garden-like language, now we see this relationship back and forth always between the kinds of places described as garden-like or the kinds of places described in temple language are oftentimes giving us these images, these glimpses once again of a time when God can perfectly dwell with his people. And so you shouldn't be surprised, and I'm not surprised, that all through the book of Revelation, we find many, many allusions to the temple and to many of the elements that were within the temple. For example, the lamps or the lampstands, we've already looked at these before. The living creatures that looked like cherubim, which we're going to get to in our chapter 4 here. Incense and prayer from chapter 5. Songs of praise, like those once offered by the priests and the Levitical singers in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a sacrifice in chapter 5. We're going to see the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 11. We're going to see the altar in chapter 11. And we're going to see the outer court in chapter 11 as well. Over and over and over and over, there are images and glimpses of what life was like in the temple. Because the temple is the place that God reminds us what his actual presence and existence is like in heaven. And in the book of Exodus, when Moses was given instructions on the top of Mount Sinai for how to build the tabernacle, the Lord repeatedly told Moses that he was to build the tabernacle exactly like he was shown the pattern on the mountain. And the book of Hebrews picks up that this pattern, this shadow, this image that Moses was receiving on top of Mount Sinai was in fact an image of the real thing that the tabernacle that Moses was building and the temple that Moses later built was simply a copy of. And so the idea here is that John is getting a glimpse of the real thing. He's getting a glimpse of what worship in the temple looks like. He's getting a glimpse of what worship in heaven looks like. He's getting a glimpse of who the kinds of creatures are, what is actually coming forth from the throne in heaven to communicate encouragement to a people that are facing either temptation or persecution here on earth. And so as we walk through some of these ideas, we recognize that in the midst of all of this vision, at the very heart of this vision, at the very center of the vision, is God's throne, which is in heaven, and it is representative of his kingly rule over all things. And as this vision unfolds, we find that God is surrounded by successive circles of servants. There are 24 elders and there are four living creatures. And then as we get into chapter 5, we're going to find out that there are myriads of angels. And then there are people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And that the farther away from the throne you go, the bigger and bigger it gets. And worship is joined in by more and more creatures. And it's actually quite a bit of fun when you, when you dive right in and when you, when you get into it. And so right away in chapter 4, John is told to come up here and he sees one seated on the throne. And then it says in verse 3 that he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, we're going to see stones, and we're going to see colors, and we're going to see all kinds of things here, but I just want to jump right in. When we see around the throne was a rainbow, 
that had the appearance of an emerald. I think what's really important here is that we can remember back to a time in the Old Testament where a rainbow was described and discussed. And it was something that the Lord God himself put in the sky to be a reminder of the fact that he was never again going to destroy the earth with a flood. And so in the Noah story, which is in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, what we find is that God's judgment on the earth mixed with God's mercy and his care for his people, we are reminded of the fact that God is not unwilling to judge wrongdoing and sin, but that it is not in his deepest compassionate part of his nature to want to do that. And so the reminder of the rainbow in the sky is an act of mercy that despite judgment that sometimes does come forth from the throne of God, mercy is always right next to it. And that the heart of the Lord as demonstrated in the rainbow does not want to destroy people. I mean, he says, I don't find the, the pleasure and the death of anyone declares the Lord. I am not sitting on my throne eagerly looking for people to whom I can inflict punishment, judgment, or death. That is not me at all. Mercy is the very center of my character. And that's important to know as you begin reading through chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, because we're going to see and hear about judgments And we're going to see and hear about things emanating from the throne. But I think it's important for you and I to realize right at the beginning that many of the things we are about to read don't necessarily mean God's anger and hatred on the world and his eager desire to pour out his wrath. And I'm going to walk us through why I don't think that's the case. But I think John sets us up quite nicely by reminding us that from the throne, There is this appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald. Verse 4 in Revelation 4 begins by saying, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, and different commentators have different opinions about what these... Elder, who these elders are and what their 24 thrones are, but to remind us once again of the fact that this is a vision of heaven, what takes place in the heavenly realm. Um, one of the things that I have been aware of for a little while, but haven't really gone into great detail, um, but is something that shows up in Psalm 82, and I'd like to read that for you here, but is this idea of the Lord God himself um, having a divine counsel having a heavenly group of um, angelic or divine beings of some sort who oftentimes carry out much of his will in the earth, but also are, according to the end of Deuteronomy, given actually some domain and opportunity to rule various parts of the world. And many of modern day, um, I guess I could say conservative Christians, which I would would put myself in that category, don't often think about this in terms of there being other gods. Um, I've shared with this with you already in previous episodes, um, but as it relates to to the uh, the Babylonian creation myth, for example, the idea that there's just one God and and we worship Him, even in the Old Testament, as I also shared with you in episode forty six, the Lord is to be Israel's God, and that there are other gods who, in fact, 
um, sometimes carry out very different uh, wills for their people. But in in um, Psalm chapter 82, verse 1, we read this, that God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And we get this picture in a number of passages throughout the Old Testament of the Lord discussing amongst his divine council the ways in which he thinks that they ought to rule the world. And sometimes he takes their counsel and, and, and listens to it. At other times, he chooses to do his own sort of thing. And the picture here isn't to get too muddied with the fact that God um, isn't, in fact, the one who is making the decisions or who is calling the shots. He very most clearly is. But he is surrounded in his heavenly courts by a council because God doesn't just function alone or all by himself. In fact, he created man to also be in community with one another so that we were called to rule over the earth in the same way that God and his divine counsel rule over the heavens. And yet the picture we get in Revelation chapter 4 of these 24 elders is this idea that they're on thrones. They too are ruling. They are given domain and space from which to rule and over um, over which they rule. But they are given crowns. They're clothed in white garments and they have golden crowns on their heads. These are rulers. These are leaders. These are divine beings who carry out work in the heavens, which is oftentimes mirrored in the way that, that life takes place on the earth. And there are 24 of them, and some people have concluded that these are just human figures, uh, 12 of them representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 more of them representing the apostles of the Lamb, which that's not a a bad way to interpret this. Um, In fact, I think there's a lot of close resemblance between these 24 elders and the people of God through Old and New Testament. I don't think they are the people of God, but I think there's a close identification there. There's a representation of these 24, um, kind of in the same way that the four living creatures represent um, all components of creation, which we'll get to in just a second. But these 24 elders... We're told later in Revelation 4, will take their crowns and they will lay them at the feet of the one who is seated on the throne. So despite their godlike status and despite the fact that they are these angelic and divine beings, they know who the one is who truly receives worship. And I think this would be incredibly encouraging for us. It would have been incredibly encouraging for the early church to realize that we're not just saying that God is superior to earthly rulers. We're saying that God is superior to heavenly rulers. And he's so superior to them that they take off the crowns signifying their own rule and authority and they place them at the feet of the only one in the universe who is worthy to receive true worship. Again, this would have reminded the first century Christians that not Caesar, Caesar was not the one worthy to receive people's honor and worship. In fact, lots of honor and worship were being devoted to Caesar. And one of John's primary points here, one of Jesus's primary intentions in giving this vision to John is to assure his followers that he and he alone is worthy of worship and that he and he alone sits on the throne. So verse five of Revelation four says that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder 
Now, th this is a, a fun one, and Revelation picks up on this theme a lot. Um, if you were to read the book from beginning to end, or you could listen to the book from beginning to end, you would see four, maybe five different occurrences, I can't quite remember, of times where rumblings, peals of thunder, and lightning are described in the book. Some heightened event is about to be described and pouring forth from the throne, right? From the presence of God himself are these lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, how you choose to interpret the attitude that the one seated on the throne has while these things are emanating from his presence it is a major, major point of contention, not only in the book of Revelation, but throughout the way many, many people read the Bible as a whole. Because if I ask you today, from the throne of God is emanating lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder— and then I say later on in the book, there's going to be hail that is going to be added to that. And that hail like fire is going to be added to that. And then hailstones that weigh over a hundred pounds each are going to be falling on top of people. What would you conclude is God's attitude and God's posture toward people or toward some event that is being described in this way? And I bet initially your response would be similar to mine. God must be angry. These are kind of disruptive things. Typically today, even when you hear thunder or you see lightning, it's a little unsettling. Um, it's frightening to children. Some adults I know still don't like thunder. Um, I personally do, but it isn't because I'm not afraid of it. It's because I see its its power and just what it can do if a lightning bolt strikes something on the earth. You know, what whatever has been struck stands no chance. Um, and so from the throne, John tells us, he doesn't say God's doing it. He just says from the throne, these things are happening. And he kind of leaves it at that. And what I would like to do is just to raise a little bit of a, of a helpful way of thinking about this from the Old Testament that might help shape the way we think about this going forward. And so um, there's, a, there's a section in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Um, I, it's kind of fun. Uh, we didn't talk about this anywhere in the podcast yet, but 2 Samuel 22, David is is um, writing what, what is called in my Bible, David's song of deliverance. But it says in verse one that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, if you know the Old Testament story of David and Saul, Saul was Israel's first king. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations, and they wanted to raise a king up who would be able to lead them into battle and would fight their, fight their battles for them. And the Lord was very um, displeased with his people for requesting this. Um, but he agrees anyway. He sort of stoops down to give the people what they crave, even though their choice for a king was a, a clear rejection of him as their king. And Saul is a terrible leader. He appeals in the people's minds as being the great king. He's a head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a good looking guy, but he doesn't have trust in the Lord and he doesn't listen when the Lord calls him to act in certain ways. And so the Lord raises up David and many of you would know of David. He's a shepherd boy, um, but David actually in defeating Goliath is chanted and cheered by the people 
Um, and they, they say this little refrain over and over again. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And as you can imagine, a king chosen by the people, head and shoulders above the rest, good-looking guy, sees this scrawny 16-year-old who isn't even old enough to go to battle, defeats Goliath, and gets the, the chance and the victory from all the people. You can imagine Saul's attitude toward David. And so for numerous chapters of the Old Testament, the latter half of 1 Samuel and almost all of 2 Samuel, for, for so long, Saul is actually trying to kill David. He's trying to kill him. And David knows that Saul is, in fact, the king. He is not allowed for, for his love and devotion to the Lord to actually attempt to kill the one the Lord has anointed as king. So David refuses to kill Saul while Saul's trying to kill him. But he's constantly running and hiding, and he's begging the Lord to preserve his life, despite the fact that the king of Israel is trying to kill him. Now, I give you all that background just to tell you this. As you read that story, eventually Saul himself dies at the hand of, of one of Israel's neighboring nations. He dies in a battle, and David mourns over the loss of Saul. He mourns over the loss of Saul's son, Jonathan, who had become a close friend of David's. But here's David's song that he sings to the Lord. And I want you to listen for temple imagery. I want you to listen for lightning thunder and rumblings in David's language as he describes in metaphorical terms the way the Lord chose to deliver him when he absolutely needed the Lord's deliverance. Again, this is a song that David writes. This song is so important and so valuable. It not only is in 2 Samuel chapter 22, but it makes up our Psalm 18. And go read it sometime just for fun. It's um, virtually identical, which I think is pretty powerful. So here's what David says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Now listen to David's description of what the Lord did once he heard David's cry for help. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. 
Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Then he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, again, I I would encourage you to go read um, a handful of chapters at the end, the last um, 10 or so chapters of 1 Samuel and the first few chapters of 2 Samuel to the point where Saul dies and ask yourself what part of the Lord's deliverance was ever an an, an actual occurrence that was um, uh, reminiscent of the thing that David describes. And of course, you're going to be hard-pressed to see a point where the foundations of the heavens trembled and the earth's foundations were laid bare and that God jumped on the backs of cherubim and flew down to the earth to do what? To rescue his son who was crying to him for help. Now, that's a fascinating picture, particularly as it relates to rumblings, lightning, and peals of thunder. Because these are the same kinds of descriptions given in Revelation 4 to describe things that are simply coming forth from the throne. And so what's really interesting, particularly in Revelation, and we are going to hit this square in the face when we get to Revelation chapter 5, but it is the idea of God's judgment or God's wrath or God's mercy or God's love or God's compassion or God's anger, whichever one of these we think God is embodying at a particular moment is shaped entirely by the kind of God we think he is. Now, you could read a passage like David's Song of Celebration. We could read a passage like I am, um, you know, Revelation chapter 4 and conclude whatever we want about the state of God's attitude toward people when these kinds of things are pouring forth from his throne. But allow me just to read verses 26 and 27 of 2 Samuel 22. It says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Now, this passage right here, right in the middle of David's song, I think is incredibly illuminating for us. We've already talked a little bit at length when Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear that that oftentimes refers to particular views of God that people have, which do not allow them to see God the way God actually is. In fact, their idolatry blinds them to who the real God is and what he's actually doing in the world. And so the Lord says to the merciful, I show myself merciful. The merciful see me as I actually am. The blameless know me as a blameless God. The purified I deal purely with them, but with the crooked, with those who are depraved, who are bent on evil, who want their own way, who seek to rule the world the way the enemy persuaded Adam and Eve to rule the world by calling their own shots and defining for themselves what is good and what is evil, the crooked, God makes himself seem tortuous. They can't stand what they see. 
They don't like who God is, or may I say, they don't like who they see God to be. And so I'm not going to answer for you God's mentality or God's attitude as fire and lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder emanate from the throne because the question isn't what is God's attitude when these things are happening as much as who are the people who see God acting in a particular way and what attitudes are they ascribing to him when he chooses to be this way. Because so far in Revelation 4, we're not talking about anything that God is doing yet. We're simply saying what John sees are these kinds of things. Earth shaking, lightning, you know, brightening the sky, thunderous booms of, of, you know, earth shaking thunder. I mean, I'm, I'm running out of words to use. I don't even have a vocabulary beautiful enough to describe this. But these are simply the things that are coming from the throne. They just are all the time. And our question would be, what is God's attitude? The, the, the smoke coming out of his nostrils. I mean, I picture like a huge dragon, you know, uh, pouring forth. The Lord is angry because one of his chosen people is in danger and is crying out for help. And yet the Lord doesn't demolish Saul with all of this anger, like nowhere in here is, is this the way that Saul's life ends particularly, but David has decided that when the Lord is in his temple and he calls on the Lord for help, the Lord comes with such ferocity and such intensity. That's what we see in Revelation. We see the ferocity, we see the intensity, but I wanted to draw our attention back to 2 Samuel 22 and to Psalm 18, which is the same exact song of deliverance to remind us that sometimes the Bible uses images like this. Here's God who has a compassionate love and rescuing heart for David with the fire and lightning and coals of fire and smoke coming out of his nostrils and rumblings and peals of thunder. And then you have those enemies who has actually called, um, they are actually the reason why David is pleading with the Lord to save him in the first place. How would those enemies view God's lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and smoke coming out of his nostrils? We're going to find out really quickly that some of the same views of God bring terror to some people. They bring this tortuous view of God, which we're told in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty seven, whereas others see those same aspects of God as the pure, blameless, merciful compassion of God that 2 Samuel twenty two twenty six tells us is true when the people are faithful and blameless and pure and merciful themselves. And so a lot is writing on this. And yet, like I said, we are not told something that the Lord God is doing. We are simply being given a description of what is. This is simply what is happening from the throne are coming these various things. But why they're coming from the throne, we don't know. And yet, if we follow what we hear at, at the Second Samuel 22, 26, and 27, that to different people, you're going to see God in different ways, it will be very, very helpful as we proceed through the book because there are, I, I'm not sure I could even count them, the number of ways that 
some activity or event appears to mean one thing to one group of people and it appears to mean the exact opposite to a different group of people. Once again, we are trying to gain a glimpse of the real God in a culture, in a time where others are claiming to be God and are claiming to rule on God's behalf in particular ways. Caesar's way of ruling and Rome as a nation's way of ruling does not properly reflect the character and nature of the God the Christians in the first century were called to follow, nor is it indicative of the way that the God they follow and worship chooses to rule. This will be very, very important as we move forward. It will answer what it looks like in your life and in mine to rule over our own lives well. We have to have a clear picture of the God that we are worshiping, the one seated on the throne, in order to know what it would look like to rule our lives well and to rule the world well as his image bearers. Once again, we're no farther in Revelation 4 than right back to the beginning of the Bible, right back to the beginning of this podcast asking, what does it mean to rule the world well? What would it mean on earth to see people who are faithfully ruling from their own thrones? I mean, that's a question that people in Rome knew the answer to, and the people in the churches in the first century were potentially beginning to question whether or not their idea of what it meant to rule well was going to get them anywhere in the world. And God is explaining in chapters 4 and 5 precisely what it means to rule, what kinds of things emanate from the throne of the one who does rule, and how it is that he ultimately chooses to exercise his rule in the world, both for his own glory and for the benefit of the people who live in the world. And that's what we're going to dive into the next week and the week after that and the week after that as we begin to work our way through Revelation. That's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode. I know we did not get all the way through chapter 4. I believe we can wrap it up in one more episode before we dive into chapter 5. The more I think about this Revelation series, the more I think there will be points coming up soon where we will not have to go quite as slowly as we've been going through these first four and possibly through the first five chapters. My reason for taking the time to do it now is because there is a lot of undoing that needs done in people's minds in order for us to even begin to understand the kinds of things that we're going to face in the upcoming chapters. But I will tell you that what I just shared with you is very, very important to understand. It's to see the fire and the rumblings and the peals of thunder coming from the throne. But if we bring in our idea of what David's song of deliverance tells us about God's attitude when these things emanate from his throne, we don't see him as simply a vengeful, angry hateful God ready to bring down wrath on the people that don't trust him. Rather, that response, that coming from heaven to earth, riding on the back of cherubim, smoke coming out of his nostrils, wielding fire and throwing lightning bolts is done because one of his faithful followers cried out for his help. Now that's a very different image. But it is an incredibly powerful image nonetheless. And so knowing that will help us as we approach these very intense passages. And it will remind us 
the kind of God we think he is actually shapes in large measure the attitudes we think he embodies when the descriptions John gives us of his judgment are actually poured forth from his throne. What is God's stance? What does he hope will happen in the world? How does he view his enemies today? How do we view our enemies today? These are questions that the presence of God on the throne will help us to answer as long as we read them correctly. And so I'm glad you're continuing to follow along with me. I didn't mean to sort of dive back into another little section, but uh, that is all the time we're going to take for this week. Um, and I, I may be taking a break over Christmas. I've yet to decide that. Um, I've enjoyed doing these podcasts. Uh, keeping them up has been a little bit of a challenge, but I'm thankful for the 60 or 70 of you who are plowing along. If you know of anybody who you think might benefit from listening to one or two or three episodes, um, just pass one on. Share it with a friend, somebody that you think would be encouraged by it. Um, put them in touch with, with me if they've ever got any questions or any comments or, or responses. I'd love to interact with any of you. Um, until next time, have a great week.